I'm on, I'm on. Coming through? Great. So, welcome from our side, and thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you. I do um, value these opportunities highly, really um, wait on God for it, and so I do trust that this morning would be a significant day for you, that God has actually got something for you, for us as a church, and uh, yeah, that this would just be a blessed occasion. I want to just make two quick announcements before I start, and that is, the first one is, I'd like for you to just have grace with us with regards to the sound and the fans. Just uh, thought we, I'll just say it up front here, the fans obviously helps us, but it does make it that in some spaces the sound won't be so good um, for you. So also just the design of the auditorium has given us really difficulty in managing the sound and that it is equal everywhere. So I want to give you the freedom to move if you're in a spot that is dead and you can't hear or it is too loud because that just happens. There are places here just because of the design, I don't know all the engineering aspects of it, but it just makes it that some areas you can't hear and other areas it is too loud. So please have the freedom to move around. I'm not going to feel offended and never any other, other preacher too. Or if you feel not to do it now, make a note on the spot where you are and don't sit there again next week. Just move a little bit. Sometimes just two seats to the one side makes it a lot better. Okay. Also with the loudness of it in particular, some people complain. I myself find it hard at times and the whole Jezebel thing. But actually, at the back, they are monitoring it. Peter's on it. It is not dangerous. We're trying to keep it within everything, but also wanting everybody to hear. So please just have grace with us. If your senses is too loud, just move a little bit. You're going to find a spot where it would be safe and perfect. Okay. The next is I'd like to just um, honor this, the Thompson family. We saw John T here. He was here. Then all his brothers, Darren, and in between is Callum. Um, and as a family, uh, I want you to stand, Malcolm and Sandy. This is their last Sunday with us. So it is with sadness on the one side, but also with joy that we see you go, because we know that's another season for your life and that God has got much for you. But we really do want to appreciate you. Just you're an incredible family who has made a big deposit in this church. You have sowed your lives in, in every realm. You've served and worshipped for so long. We had the joy of having you as part of our Kidsman team in the early days, having so much fun together with that. Still, we'll never remember, I mean, we'll never forget the, the occasion when we had you in 2010, it was, with uh, dancing and stuff on stage. We had with Kidsman and uh, with the World Cup and all these things, the excitement that we had in those meetings. And so, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Um, we're great friends to us, but just in the whole neighborhood, what you've done to the community, where you lived, really been people that demonstrated the life in God, which has been wonderful. And here you have enriched all of our lives, and we do pray that God would richly bless you as you go to Somerset West and make your deposit there. And so afterwards, um, please come to the side here, and all those friends, family, people who'd like to pray and send them off, and just bless them as they go. The boys are going to stay with us, so part of the family we still have, as you saw John is serving this year, but... They're staying behind, and so I'm sure we'll see you during the time as you come to visit. But thank you just from the bottom of our hearts for what you've done and contributed to this community. May God bless you. <clears throat> okay, then um, for what I'm about to share today, I want to make another little disclaimer, and that is that um, it has been something that God has been growing inside of me for, uh, for a number of years, 
It might be in some ways things that you haven't necessarily heard before, and, um, but I do believe that there is something significant for us here. I believe it's a message that God has for us into 2023 and beyond, but I want to say that I'm not speaking it to you, I'm speaking it to myself just as much as anyone else. Uh, I've said to Ingrid, <clears throat> I feel so unqualified um, even to share on this because I fail in that probably every day in some measures. But as I've learned, especially these last two weeks in really reading more and more around it, I found that what all the people that speak about this whole thing actually says is that perfection is not the goal. It is practice. That is what it is about. So it's for us to just do it. And in it, when you fail, you just get up again, ask God to help you, and you go again. That is what it is. God wants us to practice. And I trust that it will become clearer what I'm talking about as the meeting goes. The second thing I want to say is that this is a two-part preach. So I do believe that today is a standalone preach that would bless you and um, would inspire you, hopefully, because I trust God is in it. But, but also, the real gem is next week, I think. I'm building my case. I'm laying the platform. I'm using scripture to um, lay the foundations for it. But I don't have time to actually go into practicalities this week. So I'm afraid you need to come back next week, or at least listen online, or if you really don't want it, okay, didn't see, you're free. But, uh, but I do believe that there's something there, but we need to take it further, take it beyond to the next step into the actual practical application of what I'm about to share. Okay, so God, I, I just again want to commit this time to you. Thank you for it, and I trust that your will would be done. Great. So I've entitled my message, The... Invitation of Jesus to an easy yoke. Using the words from Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, which, by the way, is the thesis for this little mini-series, what I'm sharing. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. But I could have just as well said Jesus' invitation to the abundant life. If I were to have quoted him from John 10, 10, where he said, I've come to give you life and life in abundance. Or I could have said, Jesus' invitation to a joyful life. Taking the words from the angel as he announced the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus in Luke, which I'm sure for all of us is fresh in our memories, thinking of the Christmas time. Or I could have even used one of my favorite Christmas carols, Joy to the World. So I'd like to actually look at that song, Joy to the World. And just as will come up there, but I want you to, to actually pay attention to the words, because I myself have actually never really was hit so much by it as I have been in the last couple of weeks of, of what we are actually declaring in that song. It says, joy to the world. The reason why? It's because the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sings. Joy to the world. Why? Because the Savior reigns. Let all, that is, each one of us who have breath in our lungs, their songs employ, like added to, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. So all nature is bringing joy, singing joy to God, and we can add our voice to it. And then this, it says, Joy, unspeakable joy, an overflowing well, no tongue can tell. Joy, unspeakable joy, it rises in my soul 
and never lets me go. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove, what do they prove? The glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And what is one of the greatest wonders of his love? It's joy that we can live in. Joy, unspeakable joy, and overflowing well. No tongue can tell. Joy, unspeakable joy, it rises in my soul and never lets me go. Don't you just love it? It certainly is one of my absolute favorite Christmas carols. I really love singing it. If it was as good as Mikey, I could have sung it for you, but rather not. I love singing it with him when he's got the mic. And uh, actually, as a matter of fact, with any, any worship band, it's just one of those songs that just ushers in all the festivities and the joys of Christmas for me. Everything. I've had memories throughout my life. I've been fortunate to be in a situation where Christmas has always had such pleasant memories with it. And, and this song just always brings that joy and that into, into my heart. But is it the song only for Christmas? For that short couple of weeks and then we're back to the grindstone and forget all about what is proclaimed? Or is this actually true? Is it true? Is this accurate theology? And if so, if it is accurate theology, is it my constant experience? And if not, why not? That's the question that I believe God is asking us here this morning. Okay, so let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 tells the story of, of Jesus' birth. The coming, and I'm sure many of us have read it over this last couple of weeks and Christmas time and that, so I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm just wanting to focus on verses 8 to 11. It says, And there were shepherds in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I'll just put yourself in that picture. I think I would have been terrified too. Remember, it's been 400 years since there's been a visitation from God through a prophet or anyone. Suddenly, just the shepherds in the fields there, here, yeah, angels appear to them. The glory of God, just imagine that, Sh <clears throat> shining around them, shone around them, and they were terrified. But this is the message of the angels. It's, but the angels said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord, 4,000 years promised this coming of this one. Actually, from when sin happened in the Garden of Eden. It was predicted to come. But let's zone in on verse 10. It says, starts off by saying, the angel said to them, first command, do not be afraid. Do you know that that is the most repeated command in all of Scripture? Do not be afraid for God's people. Have you ever wondered Why? I believe it is because fear is at the root of what went wrong. Fear is, is the problem of what's gone wrong with mankind. The moment sin came in, fear came with it. Relationship with God was broken and fear entered. And fear is, is that thing that actually is the total antithesis of the love of God. And 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love drives out fear. Many Bible teachers would say that fear, your levels of fear you can use as a barometer for your spiritual growth. The more you grow spiritually and maturity, the lower your fear levels would be. Because with growth and spiritual maturity comes greater faith and trust in God, which diminishes fear. 
So here, this message is that all fear is going to be dealt with. This is the proclamation that he's making. No longer. It's not just don't be afraid because of this appearing now. It's actually an announcement for the world that fear will be dealt with. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I bring you good news. That word good news is evangelion. It's a word that was very commonly used at those times, the Greek word. It is a happy word. It was a word used politically. We get from it. Uh, Afrikaans is very nice, Evangelii, it's the gospel, English doesn't sound so good, but the person proclaiming the gospel is an evangelist, so you can see it from there again, Evangelion, but it's the proclamation of good news, of good tidings, and what would happen as kings would go out to war, and then if they had won a victory, they would come back into their homeland, capital city, and with it bring all the loot and all the victory and everything and all the benefits that would come with it, but ahead of them they would send out someone, a herald, to go and proclaim the Evangelion, the good news of the victory that is won and all the benefits that has become yours as being a subject of the kingdom. But in this case, there's a difference because this is not only for the subjects of the kingdom. This is for all people. It says great joy, which is mega, is the word Greek there, so it is like overflowing, massive joy. It's like what we sing, an overflowing well rising in my soul, and never lets me go. <clears throat> Mega joy that has been proclaimed for them, and it's for all people. Because this promise that has been made of this son that, or child that was going to be born, the king, it's not just any his king, the Lord, the sovereign Lord, the one who would live the perfect life through his sacrificial death, pay the price, and his resurrection would attest to the fact that the Price is paid, everything has been dealt with, sin has been dealt a death blow, and we can have restored relationship back with the Father again. That is why it is great joy. So then, we can see that this is actually good theology. We'll see it further on as well as I go through the rest of my preach. This is accurate theology. So my question to you and me is, why isn't it our daily experience? Why isn't it the truth to us that there is a joy inside that actually never lets me go. I'm sure any of you who've experienced something of God has had joy, but it's like in pockets. It's momentarily, it's not the constant overflowing welling up inside. And uh, I was saying to, to my own shame, if, if people will refer to me amongst others that know me or so, I don't think that they say Francois is the most joyful or happiest person they know. It's not the natural testimony of my life. And, and it's actually, it should be. Some of the guys who preach on this or I've listened to and read up consider that it's this thing of happiness and joy. We sometimes say, yeah, joy is a deep sense inside and happiness is, you know, the outer and it's okay for the happiness. But, but many of them say, actually, that's actually not so. It actually is go hand in hand. There should be your face and your everything should actually be expressing the joy that is inside. There should be a bubbly happiness that is around. And so we can work at that, but, and that's what I believe God is actually offering us. So to answer my question, I thought to just look at a couple of statements of why that isn't the case, that we don't have this joy constantly. And a couple of statements by some Christian authors who wrote books on joy. First one is Henry Nouwen. He wrote, said, joy does not simply happen to you. You must choose joy and keep on choosing it every day. Richard Foster, in his book on joy, says, the, deci the decision to set the mind on the higher things in life is an act of the will. 
That is why the celebration of joy is a discipline. It's not something that befalls us. It is not the result of a, I mean, sorry, it is the result of a conscious decision. It's the result of a way of life. That's Richard Foster. Rick Howe, in his book, wrote, Emotions are only the tip of the iceberg. There is much more below the surface. You and I have the ability to influence our emotions. The pursuit of joy, pursuit of joy, is a moral obligation. Fascinating, eh? So what about biblical authors? What do they have to say about this joy that Jesus has promised? So let's look at Paul. In one of his letters, the letter to the Ephesians, I mean Philippians, Philippians 4, from verse 4 to 9. I'm going to work through that. And because it is Philippians, it doesn't mean it was just them there. It's included in Scripture, so it applies to each and every one of us. So this is Paul's instruction to us, or exhortation. He says, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, rejoice means go back, re is go back, joy, 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 go back to joy. So you'll see in the rest of it, he's going to tell you how you do that. The commanders constantly go back to joy. Keep on finding yourself and reposition yourself in the place of joy. And this is how. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near is the key there. Let's see as it comes. As the rest of it comes. The fact that the Lord is near is why you should be full of joy. And that's what Jesus was, Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to, to be with us. And the Spirit now constantly be with us. So it is in the proximity of God that we find joy. David in Psalm 16, hundreds, don't know how many, 1,500 or whatever years ago, before this, already wrote, he knew that. He said, that you make moan to me, Psalm 16, verse 11, you make moan to me the way of life or the path of life. Remember that phrase. You fill me with joy in your presence. At your right hand are treasures forevermore. So it is in the proximity to God that we find joy. So when we lose our joy, it is not because God has left, because he has promised to be with us constantly. He can't. He is omnipresent in any case, but through his spirit also he's with you personally there. It is because we are not experiencing his presence. We are not practicing the presence of God. That's when we lose our joy. So he says, rejoice, go back to that. And then this is the situation. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation. In other words, again, don't let fear rule your life. Get it, rid of it, because God has won the victory. In every situation, this is the way how you come back to God's presence. By prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I was listening to um, Terry, uh, Terry Fischer yesterday. He, we had a Zoom call with him, and, and he was just sharing with people, saying that some neuroscientists, is actually neurophysicists or whatever, has actually done some studies, and they can monitor what happens in your brain when you go through certain things, when you say things or whatever. And they have actually discovered that when you give thanks, there are substances released in your brain that actually causes you to be happy. Amazing. <clears throat> the Bible has known it all along. <laughs> God says, have a 
have a grateful attitude. Be thankful. Say thank you. I just thought our last year, Nick, the last two preachers before he went on holiday, spoke about that whole thing, having, having an attitude of gratitude, a lifestyle of thanksgiving. That will bring us into joy, bringing us back into the presence of God, his joy. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, that's your emotions and your intellect, in Christ Jesus. So in the drawing near to God, through prayer and with thanksgiving, something profound happens, apart from the neurophysical that I've explained. God actually does something supernatural. He supernaturally imparts peace and with a joy into your heart. Not because of circumstance that changes necessarily. Could be, but it could be that your circumstance actually stays exactly the same, but there is something that comes upon you which is supernatural from God. And that is by the conscious practice of the presence of God that we get into that position and experience that. And I'm sure there are many of you who have experienced those occasions. When you've come to, to the end of yourself in prayer, poured yourself out, knowing other people praying for you as well, there's, oh, there is this thing, I've experienced it, where God just suddenly, there's like you can breathe, like there's, the anxiety falls off you, and there's a sense, nothing else in the physical has changed, but inside of you, there's a peace that comes, God <clears throat> saying to you and your inner person, I've got this, it's under control, and that you can live and see the outflowing of it, and you have faith and you have courage to approach the situation regardless of whether it's changed. That is part of that joy that's with sight. And then verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Sounds like Rick Howe, doesn't it? That you have the ability to influence your emotions. You have the ability to direct your thought stream or curate your thought stream. You have the ability to influence the things that comes in and influences that first, that, that what happens inside of you. In Second Chronicles, uh, I mean, sorry, Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5, Paul says exactly that. He says that the weapons of our warfare is of such that it gives us the ability to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. So we can create our thinking, our thought stream. And then, here, friends, is what I believe is the secret to a happy, fulfilled life. And we'll see it further as well. This is what Paul says. He says, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So in other words, what Paul is saying is follow my life's example. Imitate my lifestyle. And we know that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what we can say here is that Paul is saying is imitate Jesus' lifestyle. Okay, you may think, you know all this, but I'm going to show it to you now. I don't think we really realize the difference. It is not. Anyway, I will get there. So imitate my lifestyle. So let's look at what Jesus said. That was Paul. Now Jesus' own words. And we get that from Matthew 11, 28 to 30. So Matthew 11, verse 28 says, 
Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, authors like Dallas Woodard say that in, within these verses lies the secret of the easy yoke. So according to them, and it's become my belief, the secret to us living in that invitation of Jesus, of an easy yoke or an abundant life or a joyful life, is here in these couple of verses. So let me read it again, and this time even slower. And I want you to try and let it soak into you, each of these words, and think about them, and even in this week until we meet next week, fuss over these things. Let it mill around. Ask God to explain them, work them, take your desk pad and whatever, and write on each of these words. What is God saying here? It says, come to me. All you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what is this yoke? Have you thought about that? What is this yoke that Jesus says is the answer? It's actually the key thing here, that we are to come to him and take his yoke upon us because his yoke is easy. Now, each, uh, all rabbis in Jewish days or days of the scriptures, the Jewish rabbis had two things. The one is that they had a yoke, which I'll explain just now what it is. Secondly, they had people, followers, that they called Talmudin. So those are the disciples, the ones who've been invited to come close to them. A better word in English probably is apprentice, so those who apprentice to Jesus, the Talmudin. And, the, and um, I'll explain now the, what the effect of the Talmudin, but the yoke, the meaning of the yoke is that it's got two connotations again. First of all, every rabbi had what they would call a yoke, which was their way of how to be a human. It is their way of reading the Torah, interpreting the Torah, the way of life, how to do life, how to carry this load of life, which at times could be a very heavy burden to carry. It is how to shoulder this crippling weight of life is their yoke. They called it their yoke. Because with the yoke came the second connotation, which in agrarian society, everybody would immediately know, but some of us might not because we don't know so much about agriculture, but the yoke is basically a wooden beam or bar with other things tied to it as well. But the purpose of it is that it would tie two oxen together so that their joint um, strength can be used to, to carry a burden, to, to shoulder a load or to pull a cart or a plow or something like that. So it's that partnership together to gain from the strength of the other, you are yoked together. So people, when Jesus said, take my yoke upon me, they would immediately understand the thing that he wants to carry life's burdens with you. That's the invitation. Come be tied in with me. Secondly is the yoke, is take on my way of life. That is what he is saying. 
And the purpose of the Talmudin, or the, or the goal of the Talmudin, Jesus' disciples, was that they structured their whole life, or ordered their whole life around three practices. The one is to be with Jesus, the second, or their, or their rabbi. The second is to imitate their rabbi. And the third is to do what the rabbi would do if he were you. So it is that whole thing of actually becoming like the rabbi. Now Matthew 16, many, if you uh, see what I, Matthew 16, we find the passage where um, Jesus has this private conversation with his disciples, with his close followers, and he says to you, ask them the question, who do people say that I am? And they give them the answers, and then they say, but who do you say that I am? And we know that that forms the pivotal point of the Gospel of Matthew, but as an actual fact, that is the pivotal point of every single person who ever lived its life. Each and every one has to answer the question, who is Jesus? And then how did you respond to that Jesus? That is the question that would be asked and put before everyone. But then Jesus carries on. The situation goes, and then he makes this profound statement. He says that whoever, some translation says anyone, others say whosoever, which means that is uh, Matthew 16, 24. In other words, absolutely no exception to the rule. Blanket, everyone. Who wants to do what? Wants to be my disciple. Now, is there a difference between disciple and the Christian? I don't know. Maybe. I'll leave it with you. But I believe the objective is for each Christian to become a true disciple, a follower of Jesus, a disciple. But for you to be a disciple, Jesus says, these things has to be part of your life. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So this is more than a command. It's actually a statement of fact. It says that there is no other way. It cannot be. It's not that you have to do it. This is, this is what it means. If, you, if this is not your life, you're not a disciple. It says you must. And Luke and his rendering of this adds the word daily. So take up your cross daily and follow me. So basically Jesus is saying, if you want to become my disciple, so you've identified the fact that I am the Son of God, the Savior that is to become. Remember, that's just gone before. So now, if you want to be my disciple, follow me. This is the testimony of your life. First of all, you need to die to yourself. Secondly, you've got to remind yourself daily that yourself is dead. And thirdly, you've got to follow me. And I think we lose it often in our Christian experience, if I see the world, the follow me part. That's where, where I, I believe the gem of this message and everything lies. And what does that mean, the follow me? I think that is the easy yoke, the imitating of Jesus' life. Jesus himself said, in John 6, uh, 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Eugene Peterson, who is the writer or the author of the message version of the Bible, he wrote this, or he says this. He says, the Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. But Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. So let me explain. I think 
if I said before, like this thing of, of um, it is not the testimony of most Christians to live in constant joy or the abundant or overcoming life. And the reason why I say that is because I, I think that people, as myself, we try and pay attention to the teachings of Jesus around morality. And we try our best to do that, to obey that, to do. The things that we get from the Sermon on the Mount or the, or the Ten Commandments, things like, you know, love your enemies, do good to all people, go the extra mile, slap you on the left cheek, you know, give them the right one also, honor your parents, don't steal, don't lie, all these things. We do all this. Treat others as you would want yourself to be treated, the golden rule. We do all these things. But if I ask you a question, how has it actually worked out for you? Has that resulted into an overcoming, abundant, joyful life? I don't think so. It is not. So we pay attention and we give a lot of airtime, as it were, and attention to the instructions of Jesus on morality. But we never actually pay full attention to the way Jesus lived. And I think it is in the way that he lives that the, that the, the true gem is and the overcoming life would be. So it is saying we know that if you want the life, you have to adopt the lifestyle. So uh, we look at Jesus and we want his life, but we don't actually adopt his lifestyle. So let me give it to you or explain a bit more at the hand of an illustration. Okay, so I really enjoy tennis, playing tennis. I've played tennis from before I went to school. My dad was a coach for a while, and um, I used to play with a little sawn of racket in those days, wooden ones, and uh, I love it. And I've, I've really enjoyed it throughout the privilege of doing it for much of my life. And for many, many years, I have dreamt of the say of being as good as the professionals. Uh, I admired them. I admired their skill. I even envied their lifestyle and the success of it, or not their lifestyle, their lives. But then one day, uh, not too long ago, actually, I watched a uh, documentary on the life of a person on tour, this ATV tour. And as I watched them, <laughs> I realized their lifestyle is not really what I want because it is hectic. Their training schedules are hectic. They eat, breathe, drink tennis from early morning to night, everything. They can't just eat anything that they like, that they see. Even victories, there's not time to celebrate it. They literally go from one tournament to the next. You live out of suitcases and hotels, there's very little family time, all these things. So I realized, also the one thing that really sealed it for me is after every game, they've got to get into an ice bath. Yeah, that stings, like totally submerged to here in an ice bath so that, that lactic acids didn't build up in their muscles. And I thought, no way, it's not worth it. So I want the life, but I wasn't prepared to go adopt the lifestyle. See, that's what it is. But with Jesus, it is worth it. And we should pay attention to that. So, what do I mean then by lifestyle? By lifestyle, I mean the, the way that we organize our daily routines. That's lifestyle. In other words, how do you start your day? How do you end your day? What are your habits? What are your daily disciplines and routines? The way you manage your resources of time, energy, and money. The values and 
and principles within that drives everything that you do. It's lifestyle. How you take care of your body, the things that God has gifted to it, you with. Your relationship to your phone, it's lifestyle. The way you handle social media. What, it, what you give your attention to, that's lifestyle. Those are the things but we have to see what is Jesus' lifestyle and imitate that. Not just his teachings on morality, but his lifestyle. Because that's the key of how you can live in those teachings of morality. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard this definition of insanity. Anybody know? I'm sure you do. It is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. But isn't that exactly what we do? We come to the sermon, we listen to a podcast, we read a book, or you have an encounter with God through Holy Spirit in your quiet time, and you desire what it promises, what, what is out there, what it gives to you, what it tells you. But you leave and you carry on the same way. You're not prepared to change your lifestyle to bear the fruit of that. So... And I think that for many of us, that is not a deliberate, willful rebellion against God's will. Certainly it wasn't for me. I truly desired to be changed by it. But I've never actually realized that the success or the key lies in the change of lifestyle. And there is this um, thing, I think, that God is presenting to us. Do not just read Scripture to see, to get to know who God is, which is fundamental to every passage of Scripture everywhere, and the thing that He teaches us to do and all of that, but actually to pay attention to the way He did it and the way of His life. And unless you intentionally read the gospel stories like that, I don't think you pick it up. We miss it. And that is what I want to explore with us next week, to see what the lifestyle of Jesus is like and how we can make that our own. So in closing, I want to just look again at Matthew 11, 28, 30. And we're going to read it this time from the message version. But just before I do, I want to ask you to pay attention to this. Jesus is inviting the tired and weary and burdened, which is all of us, to come to him. And the offer that he brings is that of rest. But have you ever wondered what is the means by which you're going to get that rest? Because certainly for me, if you ask me at the end of the year, you know, how am I going to enter the rest or the gift of rest? I would say, yeah, holiday please, maybe in Bali or Bahamas or something like that. Or throughout the year, just give me an extra hour every day so that I can get done everything that I need to do. You know, some supernatural way that I have 24 hours when everybody else is 25, uh, I mean 25 when everybody else is 24. And actually, that is not Jesus' office. Jesus doesn't offer a temporary escape. Jesus offers a consistent lifestyle, which is the yoke. He says, my offer to you of a, a joyful, abundant, overcoming life, a life of living in my rest continually, filling me with joy that will well up in your soul, is through taking on my yoke, which is an instrument of burden. I'm inviting you to live life with me, to have me carry the bulk of the load, the load with you, 
you know, you take on the strength of the other oxen or the other one. So he's inviting us into being yoked with him as well as taking on his lifestyle. And in that way, you'll have an overcoming life. Because you see, I, I think Jesus knew that he's, he was real. He was earth. He was here with us. He's not some very, very spiritual, super spiritual thing. He knew and he knows that life for each and every one of us is actually a sequence of burdens. That is what life is. So instead of giving us a temporary escape, because you've got to come back there, he gives us a way of life, a yoke to carry with him and experience this overcoming joy. So just listen to Eugene Peterson's version of this invitation in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Have you got it? It says, he puts it this way, he says, Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Isn't that so true? Not just any holiday. It's getting away with me, proximity with him. You'll recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Then there's that double punt. What is it in English? I don't know what it means. Which means this is the way. This is the way now. How you would, he's explaining that. How to take a real rest. He says, the real rest is in walking with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Isn't that beautiful? It's like, Jesus, you don't force it. You don't force it. It's an unforced rhythm of grace, of God, that comes into your life when you imitate his life. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Have you gone on a hike with a bag? You know, this thing that keeps on ill-fitting, keeps pressing at places where it shouldn't? Terrible. Jesus says, no. My burden will be perfect on you. Snug, fit perfectly. Keep company with me, and you will live, learn to live freely and lightly. Amen. So I think, friends, that Jesus is offering us this invitation to come with him, to be yoked together with him, take on his life, and see 2023 and the years ahead unfold with the truth of that unspeakable joy rising within your soul and never letting you go. I think that is what Jesus is offering to us. And he wants us to pay attention to the way he lived, which I'll expound on next week. Hopefully you'll come back next week. So can I ask the band to come up, please? And would you stand? And I'm going to... I've asked them to lead us in joy to the world. And I trust that it would make an impartation in your heart, that it would stimulate a desire that is great enough to actually make you not be an insane Christian, Okay? do the same things and want to change, but actually go back and be a Christian that is being prepared to be transformed by the power and the love of God and everything that is there as we, as we journey with Him, walk with Him, and learn from Him.